0: This is episode 101 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Paul Tukey, Director of Environmental Stewardship at Glenstone Museum in Potomac, Maryland. You'll definitely want to listen to Paul as he talks about managing your lawn organically and shares his top tips for how to keep your lawn healthy without chemicals. Also in this episode is a plant profile on Epimedium and. We share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Paul Tukey. He is the Director of Environmental Stewardship at Glenstone Museum in Potomac, Maryland. Welcome Paul.
1: Welcome. Welcome you. It's so great to talk to you after all this time.
0: Yeah, we've known each other in like previous lives, which we'll get into in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then we'll get really into sustainable lawn care, organic lawn maintenance, and all of that good stuff for our listeners. Um, the first thing we ask most of our guests is, were you born with a green thumb, Paul? Do you have chlorophyll in your veins?
1: <laughs> well, I will say that I was born into a family of where there were lots of green thumbs around. So I was actually raised on a dairy farm in Maine, and my grandmother grew all of the food for all the farmhands, the family, and the friends. And store-bought was a very scornful phrase around the dinner table at my grandfather's table. He, if my grandmother didn't make it, grow it, or bake it, he wouldn't eat it. And so that's the world that I grew up in. It was canned beans and canned peas and all that stuff. I just grew up not liking it, and in fact, to this day, I can't stand canned vegetables. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's got to be. I'll, I'll eat some frozen stuff certainly, but the fresher the better. And that's the ethos that I grew up with. Have I been successful as a gardener myself? Reasonably, but it's because I I always attribute it to my grandmother, and my grandfather, and then of course my mother later on and. All of these skills that were passed down through the generations is what I have benefited from and carried with me throughout my life.
0: She must have been an incredible gardener, especially in that northern climate, to have food for everyone year round like that.
1: Well, the other, the other piece is that she saw the lawn as a buffet table. So you, you think of Bradford, Maine is where they were from. So that's northwest of Bangor, Maine, if you're looking at the map. You basically see Portland to the south and Bangor to the north. And then there's a bunch of small towns. And that's pretty much Maine. Hmm. And she would go door to door to door on Reeves Road in Bradford, Maine, at about the end of April or early May, trying to beat Mrs. Strout to the dandelions. And because by then the canning cupboard was bare, the freezer was empty. And she was just waiting with bated breath for the dandelion season. And you you had to get out there and dig up the dandelions before they flowered. Mm -hmm. So they're emerging from the soil with the green leaves and the, the kind of sawtooth leaves, if you will. And she would dig those up and bring back bushels upon bushels upon bushels. And her fingers would be just black with soil. And she'd steam. She called it a mess of greens. And she'd steam them and force feed them to me. And I thought they were terrible. I thought they were bitter. (laughs) And I didn't like them very much. But she'd say, they're good for what ails you, dear. And she'd just make me eat more and more and more. She doused hers with vinegar. And I lathered mine with butter and uh, made them palatable. And I, of course, now I love dandelion greens, but back in the day when I was a little boy, I didn't so much, but that's how we got by. A goal for her was to have her peas by the 4th of July. Uh, Occasionally, if it was an early enough season, she might get a couple of cucumbers by the 4th of July, some string beans. So you had to make it from basically April to early July, mid July, for whatever was growing on the lawn or whatever she could harvest in the forest and by the brook. So we ate fiddlehead greens, which are ferns that hadn't, hadn't unfoiled yet, uncoiled yet is what I should say. So those are, those are the vegetables that we ate were all gathered from nature for about a three-month window. And again, that's how I grew up in Maine on the farm.
0: Wow. Well, it does certainly make me grateful for the Washington, D.C. shoulder seasons that we can have, you know, greens almost year round. <laughs> but yeah, that is definitely quite an accomplishment that she was doing. And so dandelions figured a little bit more in the start of your career, right? So then you started your own lawn service. Was that straight out of high school?
1: Well, so I I was a worker. I came from a family of workers. So when we moved off the farm with I moved off the farm with my mother to the town of Falmouth, Maine, and I started mowing lawns for the neighbors when I was 10 or 11, 12 years old. And, and then I got a lawnmower and a pail of gas, a, a gas can. And my mother would bring me to this wealthy part of, we, we call it the family's foreside. And so I would just pull my lawnmower with one hand behind me and, and have my gas can in the other hand, and I would go door to door and say, would you like me to mow your lawn? And I had 15 lawns that I mowed when I was 13 years old. And that's how that's how this whole thing started, and that was yeah, that was big money, right? So you get you mow five five lawns in in an afternoon, and you had twenty five dollars, and, and back you know we're going back into the very early seventies, and so that seemed like really big money, and I just I just loved it, and by the time I was a freshman in high school, I had probably a hundred and fifty clients, and I had actually the other boys working with me, and so I was very Industrious always, but actually went to college for journalism, which is of course where our worlds intersected. Mm -hmm. And I started out in engineering. I told my grandmother on the farm that I was transferring out of engineering to journalism, and she was very distraught because she thought driving trains for a living was going to be a very good living, (laughs) because that's what she thought an engineer was. Mm -hmm. And so I wind up in journalism as a newspaper reporter. And when I first got out of college. I was covering the Red Sox, Celtics, Patriots, Bruins. But unfortunately, two or three years into that, I went through, I, I was divorcing my first wife, if I'm being honest, and I needed a second income. And I thought, what do I know how to do? Well, I knew how to mow lawns. I was kind of like Forrest Gump in the movie, you know, going back and forth and creating these nice straight lines. And I was a proper, clean cut kid. And I got lots of clients back on Falmouth Foreside my mother's mother's old neighborhood, and built up a lawn care business. Well, in, at the end of the 1990s, the newspaper folded because the, the journalism industry was already starting to shrink, the, mm-hmm. at least the newspaper industry was. And so they folded the afternoon paper that I was working for, and they offered a buyout on early retirement. And I asked my boss, I said, well, what's the age limit on early retirement? And he looked at me, I was 29 years old at the time. And he said, why, are you going to retire? And he was laughing. And I said, well, just go see what the age limit is. And they came back and said, well, actually, they didn't put an age limit. So if you (laughs) want to retire, you can retire. So I retired at the ripe old age of 29 and bought myself a bigger lawnmower and a pickup truck and declared myself to be a landscaping professional and built up this, what was at the time Maine's biggest lawn care company. And everybody started asking me, I just wanted to cut grass, but very soon thereafter, people started to say, what are you going to do about all these dandelions that are growing on my lawn? And I said, well, I'll get my grandmother to come down and she'll dig them up and eat them. But of course that wasn't terribly sustainable. My my grandmother lived in Bradford and I was in Falmouth, two hours away. So I started putting down the weed and feed in the so-called turf builder plus two and and everything you could do to make lawns green so they grow faster and I could mow them more often, but also the weed and feed so that it kill the dandelions that a lot of people didn't like. And it always, always ate away at me that I was doing something fundamentally so wrong because I knew my grandmother considered that dandelions to be the healthiest, most nutritious food on the planet. And it had sustained our family for generations and has sustained my ancestors for generations, and here I was making a business out of killing those dandelions, and that was terrible. Hmm. And ultimately, after doing that for three or four years, I wound up with acute chemical sensitivity in the hospital, and a lot of da- a lot of doctors initially didn't even know what was wrong. I right? I had twenty-seven employees, eight hundred clients, and you know, I had. But I'd get at night, I couldn't see the television. I had diarrhea and vomiting, and nosebleeds it was it was terrible and i thought it was the stress of running an adult daycare center known as a lawn care company mm. but the doctor actually said what do you do for a living and I said well i'm a lawn care guy he said well, what were you doing at the moment of conception and i said isn't that rather obvious and he said no wise well, guy he said what were you doing in your profession he said tell me what time of year was that so thinking well okay in april and this is—I I left out the part. The punchline of the story is my son was born by then, and the moment of conception had to do with my son because my son was very sick with ADHD, and and so that's why I wound up at the doctor for him as well as myself. And that moment of conception it would have been April of 1992, which is peak dandelion killing season by then, and. The thought that I had actually made my own son sick was sickening to me. It was like a really big kick in the gut. So, you know, I can mark that day down. That's the day that I became an organic lawn care activist. I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And there is a better way to do this. You, don't, you can make a green lawn without all of those nasty chemicals. And it doesn't have to be all dandelions. Going organic is not going ugly. But my whole crusade of the last 30 years was built on my sickness and then my son's sickness.
0: That is so fascinating, Paul, that you had that complete almost 180, but, you know, it was like a come to Jesus moment. But you always knew the right way, but this is something that pushed you right into into crossing into the right way. So were your clients resistant? Did you bring that to them and say I'm not going to use chemicals anymore?
1: How did yeah, you make actually, that transition? So, so actually that that first when I when I had this epiphany and I'll tell you the moment that I had the epiphany is that so the the local I think it would have been probably the fall of 1993 and the local department store was having a 2 for 1 sale on the weed and feed. And I thought, well, geez, I'm going to go buy as much as I can possibly buy. If there's no limit, I'm going to buy it all. And I'm going to store it over the winter and apply it in the spring. And I'll make a lot more money. that will be a higher profit margin. So I go into the store and I'm walking down the pesticide aisle and you can smell. You, you, you don't have to see, you, to, you don't even have to have eyesight to find your way to the pesticide aisle
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you can smell the stuff or three aisles away you know you're getting close it's a toxic metallic smell it's it's not it's not natural whatsoever so i get to the pesticide aisle i come around the corner and there's a mom and she's deciding what poison to buy whatever weed and feed or insect killer or whatever she wanted to buy but there was her daughter in the middle of the aisle and there were a bunch of bags that had broken open and it had spilled the contents now to this little girl it looked like sand So she's making sandcastles out of a broken bag of pesticides. And I just sort of instinctively said, ma'am, you really shouldn't let your daughter play with that stuff. It's not safe. Well, she instantly picked up her daughter as if to protect her from me and walked off very briskly in the other direction. She was quite offended that I had probably affronted her with my parental advice. And moments later, she comes back with the manager and the manager says, I understand you have a problem, sir. I said, Well, actually, I think you've got the problem, sir. You've got poisons all over your floor here that children are playing in, and that's just not appropriate. If you look mm-hmm. at the label, it says caution, warning, or danger, keep out of the reach of children. I said, You can't you can't let the kids play with this stuff. That's you got to clean that up. And he said, Well, you're right. Oh, I should we should clean it up. But There's nothing dangerous about this stuff. You know, we wouldn't sell it if it wasn't safe. And I think that that's the predominant view of the average American homeowner, is that this stuff is so prevalent in our stores. And here I am 30 years later. I like to think sometimes I'm successful at what I've done. But 30 years later, we really haven't fundamentally changed attitudes all that much, unfortunately, because we still sell weed and feed. Now, you can't buy weed and feed in Canada anymore. You can't buy it in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and lots of countries in the world. You can't buy it in Israel. But in the United States, you can still buy the stuff and put it down on your lawn. Even though it says, caution, warning, danger, keep out of the reach of children, you can still put it down. And why? It's because the lobbyists right here in Washington, D.C. are very successful at convincing Congress and convincing the lawmakers that this stuff was safe when used as directed. But that's categorically untrue. And in fact, companies have been fined for making those claims. The fact that it actually says caution, warning, danger, keep out of the reach of children means it's fundamentally not safe. And it's just not okay to put this stuff down in any circumstance for the sake of creating aesthetic beauty. It's just not.
0: And let's talk about that crusade that you've had over the years. So one component of that was a book that you wrote and that was entitled The Organic Lawn Care Manual. Uh, Another component was the nonprofit that you led and founded the Safe Lawns Foundation and a award-winning documentary film, A Chemical Reaction.
1: Well, I will say that before that, so I, the, going back to the story, so I've got a journalism degree. I've worked for nine years at a newspaper. I had my own landscaping company for five years. So the next 15 years after that, I'm getting to be an old guy, Kathy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, so 15 years after that, I ran a company called People, Places, and Plants. Mm-hmm. And that was a gardening magazine based out of Maine that was regional and we had a show for 4 years on HGTV with our friend Roger Swain and and that was that was great fun we went all around the country all around the United States and Canada filming episodes and and featuring people who gardened organically but i fought constantly with HGTV around the content because it was okay to say that organics was good, but it was never okay to say chemicals were bad because their biggest sponsor was Scott's Miracle Girl. Mm. And so Mm. we were at war with them. But in the middle of all that, at the peak of the popularity of that program, I was asked to write a book for story publishing. And they said, What do you, we just want you to write a book. And what do you want to write about? What are you passionate about? And I was still passionate. I was still that little boy in my head who liked mowing lawns. I love lawns. I, I think people say lawns are bad. Lawns are not bad. It's how we care for lawns that are bad. You know, you can't play badminton in a, in a meadow. You really can't. You can't play croquet in a meadow. So lawns serve a really super important function in American life and not, nothing wrong with a lawn. So Anyway, I so I I write this book called The Organic Lawn Care Manual. It comes out in 2007 and damn it if it isn't like crazy popular. Like way more popular than I thought it was going to be. It was a best-selling lawn book in America for many years in a row. And I start getting phone calls from the media and I start getting phone calls from the universities. And then I then in 2010 I get a phone call from a place called Glenstone which I'll talk about in a minute. In the meantime, I did a documentary film that you mentioned called The Chemical Reaction about the little town of Hudson, Quebec, that was the first town in North America, the first municipality in North America that ever banned lawn chemicals like weed and feed and Roundup. And what Hudson said, because of a doctor who worked in the town named June Irwin. So June was in the spring. Every year she was seeing rashes on a lot of children, a lot of people who worked in the lawn care industry. They'd come to her and they'd have rashes and she couldn't really figure it out. She couldn't explain it. So she started taking blood samples and she was finding a common denominator was 2,4-D. She was finding it in people's blood. And 2,4-D is is the, the ingredient in weed and feed. It's, it's related directly to Agent Orange. It causes birth defects. It causes all kinds of problems. And so she concluded on her own that 2,4-D was dangerous. She called the federal government in Canada. They wouldn't take her phone calls. She called the regional government, which is the provincial government in Canada. They wouldn't take her calls. So she went to the local government in the town of Hudson. and She went to every single town meeting for six years. Every single town meeting, 72 consecutive town meetings, with information about how bad weeden feed was for the health of humans and pets. And at the end of those six years, a new town manager, Michael Elliott, stood up and said, What are we gonna do about June Irwin? Because I think she's right. So when he said that, all the other counselors in the town voted and they 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 banned. Weed and Feed and Roundup weed killers in the town if they were going to be used for the sake of creating aesthetic beauty at a private residence. Now the golf courses could still use it and the farmers could still use the Roundup, but they didn't think homeowners should be using this stuff. So it passes the the Hudson Town Council, the lawn care company then known as Chemlon, now known as True Green, but at the time it was known as Kemlon. Kemlon sued the town of Hudson and they, they paid the $300 fine. They kept applying the poisons. Well, it went to regional court a year later and everybody expected the town of Hudson to lose. Literally everybody across Canada. And I was starting to track this because it was in the news at the time. So I'm starting to listen, watch this. Well, damned if Hudson didn't win... At the regional court level. So then the Chemlon sues again and they take it to the regional provincial court. Hudson wins then. So 10 years later, 10 years after the original lawsuit in 2001, it goes to the Canadian Supreme Court. Hudson wins nine to nothing. The Canadian Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Hudson had the right to ban these toxic chemicals based on the obvious evidence of their toxicity. And what's happened like wildfires since then in the subsequent decade, is that in virtually all of Canada, you can't buy weed and feed and Roundup for personal use anymore. Now the golf courses can still use it and the farmers can still use it. And that's another whole podcast. But the reality is in Canada, they've the physicians have recognized how bad this stuff is. The Canadian Cancer Society, who I worked with a great deal. And all of this is documented in that movie, A Chemical Reaction. And I followed that movie around North America for many years. And, but ultimately through all of that, I come back to this little museum at the time, very little museum in Glenstone in Potomac, Maryland, called Glenstone in Potomac, Maryland. And I got a phone call and they said, would you come down here and show us how to do sustainable lawn care? I said, I'm really busy. I don't make house calls. (laughs) And actually, on June the 23rd of 2010, literally the day before, I had shown the movie to the, the entire Canadian legislature. All of the elected officials across Canada came together in Ontario. And I showed the film that night. I got on a plane the next morning and came down to Glenstone. And I had no idea what Glenstone was. I'm not sure if your listeners know what Glenstone is or not. But I pulled in and I was blown away by the beauty of the place. But of course, they had 16 acres of lawn that was cared for with weed and feed and Roundup. And all the trees had this so-called integrated pest management program, which meant they preemptively sprayed insect killers and weed killers and all this stuff. And they wanted me to show them a different way of doing it because the co-founder of Glenstone, Emily Rails, was pregnant with her first child at that time. And she had intuitively concluded that when something says, caution, warning, danger, keep out of the reach of children, she couldn't very well keep it out of the reach of her children if she was putting it on her front lawn. So she went to the grounds team at Glenstone and a guy named Tony Cervini, who I give a lot of credit to, he's a chief operating officer who ultimately contracted with me, and he had read, men, he was a subscriber to Men's Health Magazine, and it was a big feature in Men's Health Magazine in June of 2010 with the title, Is Your Lawn Killing You? And it was a story about me and my crusade and my movie and my book and, and every, all the stories that I'm telling you right now. And Tony had read that, and he said, well, what if I call this guy? And he ordered my book, and the rest is history. I've been affiliated with Glenstone now for 12 years, and I live here in the D.C. area in the, in the village of Potomac. And if anybody wonders if organic lawn care, getting rid of the pesticides works, I just invite you to come to Glenstone. It's on Glen Road in Potomac. We're open Thursday through Sunday, 10 to 5. If you get on the Ride On bus, which is a public transportation bus that originates in Frederick, you can come over even if you don't have tickets if you show up on the bus we let you right in the front door mm-hmm. with no questions asked when you can see if uh, organic lawn care works with your own eyes
0: mm-hmm. i think the bus actually originates in rockville what did I say? You said Frederick. I just did not oh, want to steer right. anybody wrong. Yeah, you're right. go to Frederick said, if you want if to get that. If topic. I said
1: Frederick, I misspoke. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Miss, I'm tired. No. Anyway, you're right. It originates in Rockville. Thank you for catching me on that.
0: Yes, they'll figure that out. But I've done that myself, and you know, I'm a big public transit proponent. And if you ride the ride on through July... 4th, I think it is right now, it's free in Montgomery County. So even better reason to take public transit is it's currently free um, during this COVID period, and because they want to get more people on public transit, of course but let's let some of our listeners who might be from outside the area know a little bit more about Potomac, Maryland and kind of our setting and what the expectations are for landscapes in Potomac as well. So, you know, it's a very hilly, um, you know, large house at the back of a long driveway type of area, right? And so most of what is in that front part, from the road to the home is going to be a big expansive lawn
1: yeah we uh, you know the euphemism is mcmansions right and mm-hmm. so potomac is If last time one of the times i looked on wikipedia potomac was the highest per capita income community in the country uh, under a certain size mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a very affluent community mm-hmm. and i think the average the minimum lot size in most of potomac is two acres and you're right, Kathy. The most of that two acres is typically in lawn. Yep. And again, when I got so Glenstone is situated on one of those residential community areas, but the founders of Glenstone, Mitch and Emily Rails, had the foresight to buy a fairly big open track that wasn't converted to cul-de-sacs yet. And in fact, it the lot that they originally purchased was already pre-approved for, I think, 36 house lots. So they purchased this in the early 80s, and they build a home. They raised, uh, Mitchell Rails starts to raise a family, and he starts to collect some art. And in 2006, he's now married to Emily Way Rails, and she is a very renowned art historian and cur- curator, and they're, they're a force together in the art world, and they come upon the idea of building their own art museum to, sh- to begin to share their collection with the world. So this happens in 2006. They build a landscape with a lot of lawn, six, 16 plus acres of lawn. So four years later, I come into the picture as, a, as a, what I think is a one-day consultant, and I immediately get put on a retainer for a day a month. And we start to have conversations with Tony Cervini and also Peter Walker and partners, the landscape architecture firm out of Berkeley, California, who was working at Glenstone, a gentleman named Adam Greenspan, who was the actual landscape architect. And we started to have these conversations about if we're going to expand Glenstone, can we do it in a more sustainable way? And it was a very iterative, collaborative Environment in those days, also with the architect Thomas Pfeiffer out of New York. So as we started to envision Glenstone into the future, and by then the other thing that was happening is that we were Glenstone was acquiring more property, more budding property. So so when I got there it might have been 120, 150 acres. it's now more than 300 acres. And every time we acquire a new parcel of property, We put it into the master plan pool and we talk about what we can do with it. But the ethos is whatever we do, we want to be regenerating the land. We want to make it better than it was when we acquired it. So a lot of times we take down the homes. We donate the materials to Habitat for Humanity or Second Chance out of Baltimore. And then we figure out what we're going to do with the landscape. And pretty much the last option that we would consider would be lawn. We have planted 11,000 trees at Glenstone in the last seven years. We have restored more than three miles of streams and tributaries. We've planted 45, 45 acres. That's astounding uh, amount of native meadow. And and we've done this all without weed and feed, all without Roundup, all without massive amounts of chemical applications. We've, we do it all based on mother nature's own systems, the same systems that my grandmother used to use back on the farm in Maine, which she called the poop loop of life. And that's based on the reality that everything eats, everything drinks, everything breathes, everything digests its food and then excretes its food. And that excrement is fertilizer. That's how we can, that's how trees grow taller year over year because the leaves fall to the ground that were generated through photosynthesis. And if we don't maniacally rake up those leaves and put them in a plastic bag by the side of the road, those leaves stay on the ground and they biodegrade. But how do they biodegrade? Well, they biodegrade from the organisms that are in the soil. So they eat the leaves, they digest the leaves, they excrete the leaves, and through that mineralization process, fertilizer is created. So the basics of organic lawn care is to only apply materials that used to be alive, whether they were derived from animals or plants. In some cases, mined minerals like limestone. So that's the key here. What we're talking about at Glenstone or any place I've ever done this all over the country and Canada is to focus on the soil as a collective amoeba, if you will, collective organism that is alive. Mm -hmm. You have to think of your soil as alive. Dirt is what collects on your shoes and you track into the house. Everything else is soil. In soil, the organisms in the soil has the exact same needs that we do as people to eat, breathe, drink, digest, and excrete. Now, if you compact that soil because you're walking all over it all the time, it's not going to eat and drink and breathe very efficiently because you're compacting it. So what what I tell people is you want to increase the sponge factor of your soil you want to have nice aerated nice fluffy soil now it has to be firm enough to walk on it has to be firm enough to run a lawnmower over it but you don't want to compact it so much because in a compacted soil is, is going to absolutely be a weedy a weed producing soil And weeds and insects are nothing more than messengers sent to us by mother nature to tell us something about the soil
0: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i would say they're opportunistic and that's the avenue to be introduced into your landscape is that hard compacted soil or, you know, whatever other unhealthy condition you've created. um, That's where you're creating that inroad for those weeds or pests to come into your landscape. But I did want to roll back to one thing you said about defining organic. And I think that was really apt and easy explanation is something currently living or that was once living. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes a so much easier uh, definition to relate to for people. So, because you always get into the, well, chemicals are, you know, I have carbon and that sort of thing. So, right. you know, it's really man-made chemical. Sometimes people will use that term um, mm-hmm. to say an inorganic or dead material. So I think that's a very apt description.
1: Yeah. The, the, the thing that the term that gets tossed around is it's organic based.
0: Mm-hmm. anytime
1: somebody's calling something organic based folks if you're listening that's a massive red flag mm. somebody's trying to greenwash you if it's organic it used to be alive it came it came from an animal it came from a plant or a mine mineral that's it that's it that's the only definition of organic that we're talking about here we're not talking about the chemical organic chemistry definition where anything with a carbon molecule that's not what we're talking about and so we're talking about animal manures we're talking about fish waste. We're talking about ground up fish in some cases. We're talking about really anything that, that was derived from plants and animals. And that all of that stuff is going to be allowed in, a, in an organic system.
0: And for those listeners not familiar with Glenstone, we should um, define it as basically an art museum with an extensive sculpture garden, like the entire grounds basically, right, are the settings for those outdoor sculptures. And so that's why there's an expanse of, you know, a lot of lawn around some of those because it's either the artist who has decreed, you know, it has to be in the setting of such and such amount of maybe turf grass or something not competing with the artwork or it's because of the aesthetic, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the mission statement in Glenstone is to demonstrate the seamless integration of art, architecture, and nature. And you're right, the, the ethos is that with everything being integrated, no one of those three, art, architecture, and nature, should overwhelm the other. And I think we've done that pretty successfully, and you'll see examples of it just as soon as you pull into the grounds. And really the parking groves, where you, literally where you put your car is in fact i gave a tour today and someone says well that's art right there and and then you come to the architecture of the arrival hall and certainly the arrival of the pavilion so glenstone is it's on about 300 acres now we have two different gallery buildings one is called the gallery that's the original glenstone museum building which we now call the gallery and we have another one which is seven times the size of that one called the pavilions and it really features a who's who of the modern art world, modern being defined as post-World War II. And if you're an art aficionado who's into modern art, Glenstone is absolutely a must-see location. The architecture is breathtaking to me. It's I never, ever get tired of photographing it. I have the privilege of doing so almost every day. The first building was designed by Charles Guafni, back in the early 2000s, so it opened in 2006, so he would have been designing in 2003, 2004, 2005. And then Thomas Pfeiffer was brought in after Mr. Guafni's death. Tom Pfeiffer wins an international competition to design the expanded Glenstone. And the expansion brought us a cafe, an arrival hall, and the pavilions. And then we have since converted a pool house which was the founders' pool house. That is now an a patio, what we call the patio, which is another dining area. It's actually my favorite place to have lunch anywhere in the D.C. area. It's just so bucolic, so quiet. Uh, it's all organic. There's trees and grass and birds and butterflies, and and we just, I'm so proud too. One of the things that we started doing a couple of years ago, Kathy, I don't even know if you know about this, is we started quantifying all of the species, whether they be plants, animals, insects, we're literally counting everything that grows here and where it's growing. So we can make that relationship between what we grow, what seeds we plant, what species we choose, and then what insects live here and what birds live here because that whole ecosystem is so important. If you're going to regenerate and restore you need to have data to prove that you're heading in the right direction. Wow. We actually work with the Maryland Department of Natural, uh, Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, that is, and Natural Resources to count all of the fish in our streams and all the aquatic invertebrates. And then we have a wonderful gentleman named Mike Bowen who comes in. He's identified 100, and he told me last night, I think it's 134 different bird species at Glenstone. So it's it's really extraordinary what happens. It's the build it and they will come phenomenon, except in this case, we're talking about nature. And the bir- I swear to goodness, the birds can tell that there's no pesticides on this property. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody who comes to Glenstone will remark on that. It's like, wow, I've never seen this many birds or I've never seen this many insects. If you come to Glenstone, which is at 1200, it's 12100 Glen Road, You come here and you walk down the main path through 45 acres of meadow, and you do it in July, August, September, you're almost certainly gonna have a grasshopper hop on your arm, hop on your shoulder, hop on your leg. Some people coming from the city will freak out about that, but most people love it because they've never seen a grasshopper up close like that before, much less on their sleeve or on their arm. And grasshoppers don't bite, and uh, praying mantis don't bite people. They're pretty mean to other insects, but they don't mm-hmm. bite people. And so come enjoy all that.
0: And one thing I have to do a little aside to say that in the pavilions, there's a wonderful water garden Yeah. directly in the middle. And that's probably my personal favorite part <laughs> yeah. of all of Glenstone, because first of all, I love water gardening, but it's just incredibly beautiful, just breathtaking. Um, so don't miss that
1: yeah, if we, you go we, and visit yeah we call it the courtyard pond and that was really a collaborative effort if you if you talk about the seamless integration of art architecture and nature there's a deck out there that you can just go out and sit and bask in the sun mm-hmm. it's about the size of a football field and it is the centerpiece of the whole pavilions museum experience that thomas pfeiffer and adam greenspan collaborated on so you you've got water, you've got plants, you've got concrete, you've got glass, and you've got this sensory experience and acoustics that just really make a magical moment. There's really nothing like it anywhere in the world. Uh, You're right, Kathy, it's just stunning.
0: And so we'll turn the conversation now back to sustainable lawn care and maybe address some of our homeowners' concerns of how to do that in a home landscape. You know, say, not all of us have the budget of Glenstone, right, Paul? (laughs) And can get you to come and do a consultation. So I was thinking, uh, somebody maybe who's purchased a home in an older suburb with really compacted soil and kind of a very weedy lawn, what would their first steps be to remediate that?
1: Well, I would say... Sometimes I'll give a two hour lawn care talk and at the end I'll joke, just add compost and have a nice day. And and, and it's literally, I could could have given you the whole talk in 30 seconds. So again, what I I mentioned before is weeds are messengers sent by mother nature. So you look at your lawn, you can tell it's kind of compacted. Maybe the soil is just not very forgiving when you walk across it and you've just got a bunch of so-called weeds. That means that's what your soil wants to grow. Now, lawns, grass plants, that is, have different needs than weeds. They like different soil conditions. So they like a pH that's roughly neutral. So you may remember from high school class where the you have a pH scale from zero to fourteen and seven being neutral. Turns out that grass likes really neutral soils. You know, 6.5 to 7. And so the first thing you should do is get a dig up some soil to a depth of about six or eight eight inches from four or five different spots on your lawn and put them in a box and send them off to the Cooperative Extension Service. Or there are many labs in the state of Virginia that do this for a fee. And it's not a a big fee. We're talking 15 or $20 at the most. And get a soil test. And when it asks you what crop it is that you wanna grow, simply write lawn grass that's your crop and you'll get a series of recommendations that comes back and write down on your soil test that you want to do this organically because the amount of so-called fertilizer material if a chemical source or an organic source they're, they're different and you know, there's different ratios but the biggest thing is to get that soil test and look at the pH and if your ph is low which means the soil is acidic then you're going to need to do some soil amending you're going to need to add some material to raise the ph now you can raise the ph in a variety of different ways limestone is the most common way to do it or wood ash okay those are the two areas, those are the two ways to really raise the ph is through the application of limestone or wood ash but What you really want to do if you want to eliminate weeds is make sure that you get the right kind of limestone, which is high calcium limestone, also known as calcitic limestone. You don't want to have too much magnesium in the soil because you want to have a calcium to magnesium ratio in that soil test of about seven to one. So, high calcium limestone is my biggest recommendation. Most of the soils that I've seen in this county, in this region are acidic. Now, if you do have, and there are pockets where the soil is not acidic, where the pH might be 7.5. I've seen it as high as 8.2. That means it's an alkaline soil. Now you still can have the wrong calcium to magnesium ratio. So if you need to raise the calcium level of an acidic, I'm sorry, an alkaline soil, Gotta make sure I'm speaking clearly here, You've got a pH of, say, seven and a half or eight in alkaline soil. On that soil, you want to add gypsum, okay? That's the, instead of calcium, you want to add gypsum. I hope I've made that clear, those two distinctions. Oh. So get that pH as close to neutral as you can. What else can you do? Big, big recommendation that I made when I first came down here at Glenstone and to anybody else who's listening, including the University of Maryland, who I did a, project, a research project with. I said, you want to mow the lawn no lower than four inches, four inches. For most lawnmowers, that's going to be the highest setting of the mower blade or the highest setting of the wheels. And that's a lot higher than some people are used to doing it. People are used to looking at golf courses and thinking that's beautiful and they want to emulate that. So they mow the lawn pretty low and that's absolutely the worst thing you can do. It's the worst, worst thing you can do if you don't want to have weeds and you don't want to be a slave to watering. So tall grass plants shade the surface of the soil and that gives you two benefits. Number one, shading the surface of the soil means the soil doesn't dry out as quickly. Number two, shading the surface of the soil with tall grass plants keeps the weed seeds from germinating because weed seeds... I'm talking like crabgrass, for example. That needs light. It needs light to germinate. So if you go out there this spring and you mow your lawn down to two inches and you rake the heck out of it, you scratch that soil, all you've done is created an ideal environment to germinate weeds. That's absolutely not what you want to do. You want to keep your lawn at four inches. And if you have leaves on the lawn that you want to get rid of them, just kind of sweep them off lightly with the rake but don't grind that rake into the soil. The only time you would do that is if you wanted to overseed, mm-hmm. which is also a really important part of an organic lawn care program. Instead of putting down weed and feed in the spring and the fall, overseed with fresh grass seed because the young aggressively growing grass plants will outcompete the weeds and displace the weeds. So, those are those are real basic things right there even if you don't have a big budget. I like to say, and this is the truth, the founders at Glenstone wouldn't have done certain things here if there wasn't a really good economic reason to do so. Going organic is less expensive. It's counterintuitive for a lot of people, but the reality is it's less expensive because we're not mowing as often, we're not watering as often, we're not putting expensive inputs down. Now, if you've got a lawn that need, that doesn't have much organic matter, so when you get that, that soil test I told you to go get, Another key component in addition to the pH is the amount of organic matter in the soil. The organic matter should be at least 5%, and on the top range, it should be 8%. So you want it between 5 and 8% of organic matter. If you get our first soil test at Glenstone, the organic matter was 1.6%, way, way too low to have success. So what we did is we started adding compost in the spring and the fall. We top dress a quarter inch layer across the whole lawn. That is expensive. That can be, be prohibitive for a lot of homeowners to do their whole lawn. So what I say is pick the area of the lawn that you want to look really nice and top dress that with compost. If you do that, you do that in the spring, do that in the fall, do it a couple of years. I guarantee you, absolutely guarantee that you'll have a better lush healthier looking grass, greener grass. And the benefit of putting down that compost is that it becomes part of the soil forever. You put down a synthetic chemical product like a Turf Builder Plus 2, all it's going to do is it's going to make the grass greener for the short term. Two-thirds of the product is going to leach off or volatilize. It's going to go away. And you're going to have to reapply it every year. So your lawn effectively becomes a junkie. When you put down compost, you're increasing nature's own poop loop of life that my grandmother used to call it you're increasing the soil's own ability to to sustain itself and you will reach a threshold like we have at Glenstone where we don't apply compost anymore because we don't have to our organic matter is right where it needs to be
0: yeah and so much of that is just you know saving that backbreaking labor you don't have to do all those mowings you don't have to do the chemicals, and if you were hiring a service to maintain your lawn, uh, what would you look for in them?
1: Well, I look for somebody who understands organics, understands these definitions. Somebody who doesn't try to fast talk you and tell you that they're going to transition you over three years. You know, homeowners, I see their eyes roll back in their head, saying, "Hell, I don't even know if I'm going to live that long, or if I don't know if I'm going to own my house that long." At Glenstone, we really, we literally went cold turkey they call it cold tukey on one day (laughs) and and we just stopped we just stopped using all that stuff they got rid of all of it and so now it's the transition is great now again not everybody can top dress with compost but it's okay just do what you can do and leave your grass clippings on the lawn folks don't bag those grass clippings those grass clippings are full of really great nutrients so every time you cut your lawn you're basically feeding your lawn by leaving the grass clippings right where they are and Ohio State did a study about a decade ago maybe more than that now probably 15 years ago that shows that you get 50 percent of your lawn nutrients for the year for free just by leaving the clippings right there they biodegrade very quickly they're about 96 percent water So that other 4% of raw material is food. It's free fertilizer for the soil organisms. So the organisms are going to eat that dead grass. They're going to digest it and they're going to excrete it. And it's going to be fertilizer so that the lawn can keep growing. So you get 50% by leaving your grass clippings down. And then the other piece is let clover grow in this country Clover was included in almost all grass seed mixes until about 1975. And why is that? I know you know the answer, Kathy. <laughs> clover is a legume. It has the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen. The word fix means that clover has the ability to grab atmospheric nitrogen. And the air that we breathe is 78% nitrogen, but most plants can't get to it. But clover can. So clover grabs the nitrogen out of the atmosphere, stores it in its roots in little pink nodules. Those nodules break off and clover feeds the soil. So if you have about 5% clover in your lawn and you're leaving your grass clippings, it turns out you don't have to buy much fertilizer at all to have a green lawn. Now, the lawn care industry, the lawn chemical industry doesn't want you to know that because they want to sell you fertilizer. They want to sell you products. So they hate it when I say that stuff out loud. But if you simply leave your grass clippings there and you leave your, and let some clover grow, you might have to apply fertilizer once a year. That's it. One pound of nitrogen per 1,000 square feet would be all you would need.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, clover has a side benefit of Uh, pollinators and of course I like the look of of a clover lawn there's nothing wrong with the look but of course the other reason they don't want you to grow it is if you were putting a a broad spectrum pesticide it's going to impact that clover
1: oh of course absolutely And, and even the guy his name is R. Milton Carlton and he wrote the book but he's the guy who created 24D, and he wrote a book in 1957 called "It was the title was a new way to kill weeds," and he was very, very proud of his new Weed and Feed product. Except, even the guy who created 24D and created Weed and Feed and the main tool of the modern lawn care industry, he actually apologized for the fact that his product killed clover and. Because he knew that the old timers in the United States knew that the best lawns were the ones with the most clover because clover is drought tolerant and the insects love it. And it doesn't grow very fast. So you don't have to mow it very often. So clover is actually an ideal lawn plant. Now the, the lawn care industry put out a fear campaign in the 70s to convince homeowners that clover was a weed. And they did that because of, with the ads of bumblebees and they focused on the fact that bumblebees sting kids. And so they made, they scared the heck out of all the young moms of that era, saying, well, boy, if you let this crow glow on your lawn, it's gonna attract bees and the bees are gonna sting your kids. And what if your kids have to go to the hospital? And yes, there are 30 or 40 people in this country who die from shock after being stung by a bee. But, and that's terrible, that's tragic. But the reality is most everybody else is fine. So if you understand that you're allergic to bees, I, I I get why you wouldn't want to grow clover on your lawn. And I'll give you a pass. <laughs> you're, if you understand your, your child really can't be in an environment where there are bees flying around, I understand why you'd want to put down something to get rid of them. But for the rest of us, we should be celebrating clover. We should so, be celebrating diversity of species in our lawns. In fact, we should be converting, it's my big push right now, in this confluence of time where we have a war in the Ukraine and we've got this ongoing climate emergency, I'm call I've been calling on people to plant climate victory gardens and grow food on that lawn. Don't if you've got some lawn and you want to play badminton with your family and all that, by all means do it. But if you have more lawn than you need to play badminton or croquet or wiffle ball, whatever you play. Let somebody, even if you don't want to grow the food yourself, put your lawn on a registry so that people who want to come grow food can come grow food. And I know, I guarantee you can work out a deal where whoever grew that food will give some to you for the right to use your property. And that's a campaign that I've been working on, the Climate Victory Garden campaign here in Montgomery County, Maryland for some time now. And we're, going to, we're doing more and more and more with that. I just think it's an opportunity to address the food shortage. Food prices are, food futures are 33% higher year over year because of the way the fertilizer market works and it's so tied to rising fuel prices. And a third of the world's fertilizer comes out of Ukraine and Russia, which we're not able to import anymore. So the price of food is going to be astronomically high. So when you look out at that green lawn, think, how can I care for my lawn in a safer, more natural way? And can I give up some of that lawn for food production?
0: Definitely food for thought. And I know there are many food and yard sharing services being started up online. So look out for those and maybe we'll put a link up in the podcast notes to one that I think is just started in the Washington DC area for those who want to share a part of their lawn with somebody who will grow food in exchange for a share of that food. So we'll definitely have that. And Paul, I want to thank you so much for this has been so inspirational and educational and for any listener who has never seen paul's documentary a chemical reaction i would think it's still available correct
1: they can go online people can go online they can they can find their way to me if they want to own their own copy Mm -hmm. and uh yeah absolutely
0: definitely i think that's you know start there i've seen it three times maybe and i would you know leap at the chance to watch it again. It's definitely something that you want to see at least once. And how can people get in contact with you and or follow up for more information on Glenstone?
1: Well, you, I'm, I'm happy to share my Glenstone email, which is paul.tuky, T-U-K-E-Y, or as my daughter says, turkey without the R. Mm-hmm. So paul.tuky at glenstone.org. Uh, send me an email. I'll tell you more about Glenstone. We can strategize about tickets and how to get you in and all that stuff.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Paul.
1: Well, thank you. My pleasure. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Baronwort plant profile. Baronworts, epimedium species, are also known as bishop's hat and fairy wings. These tough perennial plants are natives of China and Japan. This charming plant has become a favorite of plant collectors. And once you add it to your garden, I bet you can't stop at just one. They typically grow about a foot tall and have delicate looking elongated leaves on wiry branching stems. The foliage is often evergreen. On the deciduous varieties, the old leaves should be cut back to make way for the new growth in spring. The new leaves often have a red tinge to them as they emerge and can age in autumn to a lovely rusty tone. The small flowers hover over the plants in loose sprays from early to mid-spring. The blooms of different cultivars are various shades of white, lilac, pink, mauve, and yellow. In some varieties, either the petals or sepals may be enlarged or have an arching form which looks like a spur or a wing. They make a great ground cover, especially in dry shade conditions. They also make excellent rock garden plants. Epimediums need little care. The plants can be divided in either the spring or fall, though fall is best. Slugs can be a problem. If they are, just spread some diatomaceous earth around the base of the plants. Sulfurium is the most commonly available cultivar, but good garden centers will carry other wonderful selections, including Amber Queen, Dark Beauty, and Pink Elf or Pink Champagne. Epimedium, you can grow that. this week well my pink lily of the valley are blooming away and that means it's time for me to dig up a few and pot them up for the upcoming local silver spring garden club garden mart that takes place on brookside gardens the saturday before mother's day every year and this year that would be may 7th so if you're looking for pink lily of the valley stop by and come early because they sell out quickly elsewhere in the gardening world you can find me this weekend, April 23rd and 24th, at the Leesburg Flower and Garden Festival with Booth 501. I'll be there on both days of the sale with our magazine, back issues, signing up subscribers, and signing my new book, The Urban Garden. And the following weekend, I'll be at the FONA Garden Fair and Plant Sale, that's the Friends of the National Arboretum on Saturday, April 30th at the U.S. National Arboretum with a booth there as well. That same weekend on April 30th is the Montpelier Festival of Herbs Tea and Arts in Laurel, Maryland, and you can find festival details about that herb fest at pgparks.com. Also, We have our April issue of Washington Gardener magazine posted online. So I invite you to go to our website, washingtongardener.blogspot.com and check it out. Our cover story is on clever containers for small space gardens. We have a spotlight on the year of salad greens, an invasive alert on two horned trapa, a water plant, candy tough plant profile, why plant natives, how to use rain barrels to capture rainwater, and then how do nutrients get in my veggies, which I found super interesting to read about. And our edible focus is on great corn varieties for the home garden. And we have a spotlight on a local garden in Virginia, Culpeper Garden, which added 33,000 daffodils to its landscape recently. Uh, There are many more features in the garden, but of course, There are also a great amount of garden events listed for the DC Maryland Virginia area and that's expanded back to a two-page listing again from the one page it was all throughout the COVID pandemic. So that's a great sign that things are on the upswing. Happy gardening everyone!
1: Making a lush outdoor living area, you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden: 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org.
0: If you're a crafty gardener like myself. I wanna introduce you to Let's Make Art. I do a lot of DIY projects in the garden, from painting my garden gloves, to creating Kokedama, to pouring my own stepping stones. And there's a company that can make it easier for you. Let's Make Art is a revolutionary crafting company that aims to help everyone to channel their inner artist, whether they're three or 63. With the assortment of products and subscription offers, There is an endless opportunity, fun, and access to -to easy-to-understand tutorials and resources for everyone to learn a craft or take up a hobby. Anyone can have art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits, and supplies for a variety of activities. You can start learning basic lettering techniques to get you more familiar with your abilities with hand lettering for that garden journal you might be keeping. You can also shop all the best lettering supplies, boxes, and kits curated and approved by in-house artists. There's free weekly art journaling tutorials by art journaling artists and instructors. Everyone can join with their supplies at home. Grab the prepackaged kits or get all the videos first with an art journal box subscription. Learn from watercolor artists and instructors. Whether you're a total beginner or you've mastered the arts, let's make art takes the guesswork out of watercolor, and creates easy and fun kits. The only thing you'll need is a brush. Let's make art simple, together. Check out Let's Make Art today by going to our special link, zen.ai forward slash garden DC. That's zen.ai forward slash garden DC. Happy crafting!